I mentioned last week that with several heavy things in our church, I don't think it's a, a divine coincidence that we're in the book of Job. God loves us as a church. And he knows with the heavy things we're feeling, some of them because of Harvey's passing. For others of you, Harvey's death reminds you of something else. Or others come in maybe not knowing Harvey, but with something else heavy on your heart. But God has, for our church this time, settled us in the book of Job. Uh, you saw the little scroll through as it, uh, as it opened the, the sign, this, when suffering doesn't make sense. And I, I just, before we dig into God's word and, and think, think through those things, I just want to say, I think it is a profound example of God's care for our church, that with the heavy things some of you are going through and that we collectively as a church are going through, he has us right here. The most important thing we do every week is hear God's voice as the scriptures are read. My sermon is just an attempt to help us understand what's, what he's already said. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Job. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, that looks like this. It's on page 417. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is, is, is in your hand. 
Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe. And shaved his head. And fell on the ground. And worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to him, From where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You can be seated as we pray. Father, 
You know we need to hear your word this morning. That's true every morning, every Sunday too. But here in a unique way, we collectively need your word. So we pray by your spirit you would speak into our hearts and minister to us as only you can. Help me, Father, and all of us collectively just open our hearts to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Give a grin, gang, and get gung-ho about Jesus. Smile sweetly, sister, so you send Satan sadly away. Buck up, brother Bill, because a bunch of bitter boys become a bunch of better boys behind a big, big smile. So give a grin, gang, and get gung-ho about Jesus. I learned this lyrical masterpiece in grade five at a Christian camp. The poetic brilliance of it is exceeded only by the theological rigor of it. Its basic message to us young people was, following Jesus is about equivalent to being happy. Now that message might work when it's given to a bunch of pre-adolescent suburban kids. But try it out when the unthinkable happens. You just discovered your spouse has been unfaithful. Give a grin. You receive that late night phone call that your teenage child has been in a wreck. Smile sweetly, sister. The doctor has told you that you have less than a year to live. Buck up, Brother Bill. That kind of theology amounts to a barely Christianized version of Anne Rand's objectivism. You know, you are strong. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make your situation better. Overcome. Now, I wish we could just dismiss these words as some simple, well-meaning, but playful kid's ditty. But I'm afraid that it reflects too much a theology that's endemic to modern evangelicalism. It's rampant in our songs for adults, in our bookstores, and I'm sad to say even in our pulpits. There's a Christian singer named Matt Redman who uh, travels the country playing music in churches, Christian songs in churches. And just after the tragedy of 9-11, he was traveling around to different churches and he made this observation. The truth was, in most places we visited, there was a distinct lack of songs appropriate for this time. I recently went on a website of a, a respected evangelical megachurch and looked at their sermon series. Here's what I found. A series on how to live an extraordinary life. A series called Toolboxes, a Toolbox for Life, Eight Skills You Need to Succeed. A series called Awesome, Building Great Relationships. You see this kind of flat theology where God is just here 
to help me accomplish my dreams and to feel good and satisfied is rampant. And here's what I think is at the core of this anemic theology. A basic orientation that keeps my happiness, my success, and my ease at the center of the spiritual universe. You want to have a really good and wonderful life? Be a good person, which means follow these three steps, and life will be so much better for you. Jesus is a magic key that opens the door to the perfect, happy life. And that's actually how the story of Job begins. We're introduced in the first line to a man named Job, and what does it say about him in verse 1? He's a man who's blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He has done the check, check, check that he's supposed to do if he's going to have the wonderful life, right? He is the good man, the hero. And of course, we have the happy life that comes with it. And we see that spelled out in verses 2 and 3. Seven sons and three daughters. You know, in, in uh, the Hebrew mind, seven and three were two kind of perfect numbers. The, and here they are, seven and three. And just rampant wealth. I mean, excessive wealth. He's, he is the greatest man in all the East because of his wealth. And not just being great because of his wealth, but he's respected as a result of that. That idea of being a great man shows that he was respected in the community. As one pastor described it, it's a world in in which Disney would be happy. It's a world in which the right people come out on top. And I might add, it's it's a world that fits perfectly in our modern notions of Christianity. You can imagine what the best sellers of his day would have been. Maybe titles like this. Blamelessness, the path to greatness. Or wealth, power, and influence. How one man's decision to shun evil evil shaped his destiny. Or maybe even fear of God, the biblical guide to fertility. But then we read verses 6 to 12. And our simplistic Disney theology runs full speed into a brick wall that shatters it into a million pieces. Now this unraveling we're going to kind of look at in in slow motion and and at different levels. But it begins to unravel in verse 6 when we are introduced to a sort of heavenly council. It's, it's like a scene from an ancient throne room. You have th- the king on his throne and his advisors and messengers coming in and, and going out from there, doing his bidding. They give their reports, and he sends them out on their way. Now, now, some believe this scene is what's called an anthropomorphism. I think I said that right. An anthropomorphism is when God's divine attributes which can be hard for us to grasp or understand, are described in human terms so that we humans can better and understand and relate to them. So like it'll talk about God having a hand or God having an arm, and we're not meant to think that God actually has this arm and hand, but it's, it's, a, it's a human depiction of his care and touching us and being near to us, right? So while God does work through his angels, 
it, it may not be that they enter and exit quite like described here. Whether or not that's the case, we do know that there is an actual exchange between him and Satan, or as some translators put it, the accuser. They have an important exchange, and the exchange teaches us something very important about the relationship between good and evil in our world. On the one hand, the exchange shows us that good and evil are not two equal focuses or two equal forces in the universe. So you hear this kind of thinking in the the balance of yin and yang, you know, a good and, and a dark force that balance each other. And though I hate to disappoint all you Star Wars fans, there is no spiritual force that can be harnessed for good and evil. It's not these two equal powers in the universe. Satan is clearly in this inferior to God. He comes knowing he, even the adversary, the, the, the accuser, has to come and present himself to God. He is the guest, whether he was invited or not, we don't know. But he is the guest at God's assembly, not the other way around. And he can't accomplish what he wants to accomplish apart from God allowing him to do it. So he's like, you've put the hedge of protection around him. In other words, Satan wanted to get after Job all along, but God's protected him. And he can't even do anything to Job unless God allows him to. So it's not that there's two equal powers, good and evil, at war in our universe. But on the other hand, we see that Satan does have real power. In other words, the Bible does not describe Satan as a mere pawn in God's hand, simply doing his bidding in some sort of divinely orchestrated charade that's only purpose is to see what's really in human, uh, a man's heart. Is he good or evil? Satan is a real enemy. The second most powerful being in the universe. And though the boundaries of his operations are though the boundaries of his operation are appointed by God, the operations are real. And though his every move ultimately serves God's purposes, from his own perspective, those those efforts are sincere and genuine efforts to thwart God's plan. So it's not two equal powers, but it's not just one power and the other just a puppet. It's somewhere between those two. And so, when you're hit with that weight too much to bear, and you're curled up on the floor, aching with pain because of the horrible events, you can be reminded of these twin truths. First, the accuser is alive and well. He comes, the Bible says, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is a horrible and wretched foe. Our anger is rightly directed at him and ultimately not at God. 
But, and this is the second important truth, the twin truth, Satan has not acted except that God has allowed him to because he has some good purpose in it. We see this played out in our story. You can tell in just reading this heavenly courtroom scene that the battle between God and Satan is real. Satan comes from roaming the earth. He, he almost brags to God about, hey, I can go anywhere I want. Like, I've been here and there and there and there, right? This is my territory. After all, he is the prince of the power of the air. This is his domain. Yet, God shows him somebody, Job, who's on this earth, who's part of his domain, and yet who has not bowed the knee to him, but is still following God. Oh, you've come from your territory, have you, Satan? If it's your territory, then why does Job continue to turn away from evil and to fear me? So then Satan levies his attack. He really does hate God. He genuinely opposes him, so he mocks. Oh, you think this is because of his sincere devotion to you, O Yahweh? Ha! It's only because what he can get out of it. Now hold it. Stop right there. Did you hear what he said? It's only because of what you can get out of it? Or as it says in verse 9, does he serve you for no reason? That's the sound. That, you just heard, that's the sound of our pathetic me-first theology being shattered. Look, look with me at verses 9 and 10. I want to read them for you. Chapter 1, 9 and 10. Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Who is it that's glad in this story when we worship God because it makes our lives great? It's Satan. And who is it that is mocked when we worship God because of what it does for us. It's God. In the real battle between God and Satan, our disnified theology actually plays right into Satan's hand. Now we need, to, we need to cut the line that the Bible cuts on this. We need to make sure we're not overstating the point because it's true. When we live God's way, it does often bring blessing. Generosity breeds contentment. Being a kind wife and mother usually reaps lasting relational satisfaction. And as those who are in Christ, we know that God is using our trials for a greater good, and this allows us to have a certain joy in the midst of our sorrow. But, we don't worship God because of the blessing it brings. We worship Him because He is good 
because he is trustworthy. He's worthy of serving regardless of what we get out of it. So there it is. So much shallow, thoughtless, contemporary theology that's all too prevalent. Shattered. Let's take note. But let's get back to the story. Remember we're seeing kind of how God's ordering of the world is complex. It's not just, hey, there's good and evil, there are equal forces battling, and it's not just there's only good and this evil force really is nothing more than a puppet of the good. Watch how that plays out. Satan thinks he's going to, he genuinely thinks he's going to one-up God. Of course, it, it began when Satan was bragging about his jurisdiction. And Job, as we saw, kind of, God points to Job as proof positive that that's, he, he doesn't hold full sway on the earth. Now, now, at this point, as they're having this exchange, it might seem like there's an equal power you know, both have equal power in this move here. It, it might seem like two spiritual power brokers bartering over bragging rights. But it's so far from that. Notice that Satan cannot act unless God gives him permission. And as we'll find out, God knows exactly how this story is going to play out. Satan's move to trump God ends up being a move against himself. It's, it's not two equal powers. Nor is it some flat, flattened Satan is God's puppet situation. The tension is real. The ordering of God's world is complex. I say that I'm drawing attention to that. I keep hitting it because this complex nature of God's world is another death knell to the disnified the Disney- theology of our day. I just want you to kind of track with me on this. Because Satan is a real power in this world, sometimes the innocent suffer. And sometimes the guilty prosper. As is the case in Job. But, in all of this, we have confidence that God will ultimately triumph. You see, God would not allow this self-deluded Satan to make one move unless he already knows how he will use it to bring about Satan's comeuppance. Now, Satan, he's blind. He's deluded by his own pride and he's deluded by his own wickedness. And so he actually believes, he actually thinks that he has a chance to take God down. He still thinks that, even after the cross. So he keeps running after God again and again, running after Him only to be rebuffed over and over again. And that's the dynamic in play ultimately until Jesus returns and the great battle is finally finished and Satan and all that he's gotten to follow him are cast into the lake of fire. I'm not much into martial arts for a variety of reasons, but I hear that um, the martial art of judo is built on the premise that you use your opponent's attacking energy against him. That is exactly how God and Satan interact. Satan keeps attacking, and God uses his very attack 
to bring about his defeat. Nowhere do you see this more beautifully than in the cross of Jesus. Satan had engineered this whole religious system where the the pharisaical system where where people could could feel like they were religious and have their religious to-do list and feel self-righteous and earn their own righteousness before God without really dealing with their heart and being humble and broken before Him. And then the Son of God comes along and He's in contrast with these religious leaders. And what happens? The religious leaders have their day. The pharisaical, self-righteous religion of their day has Jesus up on the cross, hanging in agony, hanging in shame as a criminal. And Satan feels like, I have the upper hand. I have defeated God. And yet, in that very act, was a thing that defeated Satan. Because Jesus, in absorbing the full wrath of God, was able to conquer sin, and then ultimately was able to conquer death when he rose up again. The two things that are Satan's great tools in this world that came when Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan. What appeared to be Satan's finest hour is what ultimately paved the way for his final defeat. As the prophecy foretold, you, he says to Satan, you shall strike his heel, but he shall strike your head. That's verses 6 through 12. And a little bit of other stuff. Be a good guy, we're told. Be a good guy because the good guy always wins. That's what verse one through five show us. It's, everything's okay. The best sellers are churning out. Verse six through 12 is all kind of a sneak peek behind the cosmic curtain. Our anemic theology of suffering might be in for a rough ride. We're getting some hints, but then we're hit with it hard in verses 13 through 19. Because the good guy has the worst day one could imagine. He loses all of his wealth. In a day. He didn't have an insurance policy. And then he loses all his children. In one fateful day. I canceled a man. Who had put all his life savings into a business. Only to see the business fail. And the pain. And shame of losing all that is hard for any of us who haven't been in those shoes to imagine. And I've wept in a hospital room where parents have held their child its heart no longer beating. Such agony is bitter to its depths and it aches and it aches, and it aches. I think the Scriptures get this. The story is told in such a way that it comes in unrelenting waves, much like our pain does when we're grieving. So you hear the refrain, while he was yet speaking, there came another. While he was yet speaking, there came another. While he was yet speaking, there came another. 
and I alone have escaped, and I alone have escaped, and I alone have escaped. Wave after wave after wave, and you feel it, and you feel it, and we who have walked through hard times know exactly why it's told this way. And then you watch Job in his agony. What do you do when your heart is so broken? Yes, some of this was culturally customary of his day for someone who was broken, but it nonetheless portrays his deep agony as he actually tears his clothes and takes the razor to his head in this unkempt mess of shavenness. But then, as he crumbles to the ground, He doesn't do what we'd expect next. He doesn't do what Satan expects him to do. Instead of cursing God, he blesses him. And he doesn't just bless him, he blesses his name. Now, one's name in those days, and in some extent today, carried with it the idea of your reputation, who you are in your character. And so he's not just blessing him like, oh, I want good things to go to you, God. But he's saying, may your name be blessed. I am affirming your character. I am blessing your character as Yahweh God in the midst of this. And he does so because of a right theology. He understands two key truths. First, he understands that nothing ultimately belongs to him. And so he says, hey, I came into this world with nothing. So he's saying nothing is inherently his. If he leaves this world with nothing, he really hasn't lost anything. He's in that zero. The other truth is that everything does belong to Yahweh. It's Yahweh's to give. And it's Yahweh's to take away. And because of this, because he understands this, and he has a good theology in his mind all along, then when the hardship comes, he can continue to trust God and look to Him because nothing has changed. The good guy loses, yet his right theology drives him to continue to worship God. Instead of cursing, he blesses. Round one goes to God. But there is a round two. I love that the scriptures begin this second round identically with the way the first round began. Did you notice that? Verses one of chapter two, verses one and two, and even into verse three are identical with what we saw in chapter one, verse six. It's almost comedic. You, you, you get the feeling that Satan wants his defeat swept under the rug. I'm just going to show up as usual. Nothing's going to be any different. And the, the story kind of plays it right along, right? Because that, that's the nature of a, a sinful heart, right? You don't want to acknowledge that there's sin there. You don't want to, in your puffed up pride, you can't acknowledge that there might be something wrong in your heart or that you've done something wrong. In fact, Satan never, in the book of Job, acknowledges that he was wrong. Their exchange goes on just like it did the first time. Where have you been? Oh, in my domain. Do you remember last time I brought up Job? 
Okay, I'll do it again. Have you considered Job? Saying all the same things. But then, halfway through verse 3, look what he says. He still holds fast his integrity. Okay, I'm bringing it up, Satan, since you wouldn't. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy me without reason. Oh, Satan's ready for that. He wasn't done, that wasn't unexpected. He's ready. Oh, yeah? The reason, God, is because you're still protecting his health. Get him on that one. Then he'll curse you. And so he gets permission from God to attack his body as well. We hear that there's brutal sores that start on the bottom of his foot and, and cover his whole body to the top of his head. We, we hear that he is in such pain that he's scraping out these sores with a broken piece of pottery. And we hear him sitting in the ashes. That's likely the place outside the city where, like the dump where you go and put all your trash and burn it. It's the place of shame. I don't know, I've looked into it, no one really knows exactly what he's doing with scraping the pottery, but I at least could relate to it in this way. When I had first moved to Texas, um, I, I got a horrible case of poison ivy. Literally, head to toe, poison ivy on my body, and these huge blisters. And, and the, the pain, and the it, it's this weird sort of itching kind of pain that is, like, it's driving me psychotic. And you could get momentary relief by pushing on them, but it made the pain worse later. But you're so overwhelmed by the pain, you would crunch those blisters together just to get a temporary relief. And I feel like maybe that's exactly what Job's doing. Ah, I'm just, temporary relief, I'm just going to scrape this out. So in the face of this, how are we tempted to think when these evil things come? We say, is God really good? I mean, if God is really the, the most powerful force in the universe and He's good, why are these things happening? That's, that's what Satan expects Job to say. That's exactly how Job's wife counsels him. When we serve God for what we can get from Him, then when we don't get it, we curse Him. That's why the theology that's subtly seeping into Christianity is so dangerous. Because if if you tell people that if you follow Jesus, He'll fix your marriage, He'll balance your checkbook, He'll mellow your children, He'll give you an awesome life, Who isn't going to want to sign up for that? Especially if it's some cool dude wearing skinny jeans who knows how to package it just right. So his church fills up. Lots of people get baptized. We all praise what's going on there. He writes books. We all read them. His podcasts are hot. But what do those people do when they wake up and they find their spouse dead? Or when the doctor reads the diagnosis. Or when that man does the unthinkable to them. See, either God hasn't delivered on his promise, 
so I walk away or I become bitter. Or maybe I just haven't done my end of the bargain correctly, so I feel guilty or I resolve to try harder. And these aren't just theoretical speculations of how people might respond. I, as a pastor, see this over and over again. It's a mess. It's the theology that Job's wife was sold, which is why she recommends to Job, just curse him, end the misery, die. Interestingly, she's recommending that, Satan, that Job do the very thing Satan wants him to do. But Job holds fast to his integrity. That is to say, he's willing to continue to worship God and serve Him even when there's no material benefit for Him. God is sovereign on the throne. I can receive both good and evil from Him, He says. He does not curse God. Round two to God. From that point, we do not hear from Satan again in the pages of Job. The good guy has remained good. He has held fast his integrity. But he has lost everything. Now, I don't want us to make the mistake that's so common in making this story the main drama of the book of Job. Chapters 1 and 2 are only setting the stage for the main drama of the book of Job. But even in this little stage-setting drama, it challenges our theology just a bit, doesn't it? Oftentimes, suffering doesn't make sense. And when it doesn't make sense, it rattles our beliefs a bit. It kind of reveals what really is in our hearts. And perhaps some of us consciously or unwittingly, have embraced a theology that puts God in the service of my comfort. We serve Him because what we can get out of it. We have a give a grin gang theology. Or we think like Disney, that the good guy always wins. And then, inexplicable suffering pierces our world. And we learn just how anemic our theology really is. Give a grin, gang. Just doesn't cut it. I mentioned Matt Redman's observation about just the lack of good songs in the wake of 9-11. So as a musician, he decided to do something about it. And where did he go? He went to the book of Job. And he wrote these words for a song that became a well-known song. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. You give and take away my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. It's actually not all that profound of a song. 
I think there are other songs that do a better job of wrestling with the agony and longing that comes with suffering. But it makes a strategic shift in how it talks about and thinks about our pain. See, it doesn't pretend that following Jesus is simply a bunch of smiles and sunshine. It strongly affirms that hardship will come as we follow Christ. And instead of expecting God to be there to make our suffering go away, it gives us words to affirm our resolve to bless God's name, His character, in the midst of our suffering. See, it doesn't insist that we be happy, but it does insist that we oriented orient ourselves to a trust in God. Both good and bad are ultimately, ultimately under the hand of God. His character, His name can be trusted. And so we choose to continue to bless Him even in the midst of our heartache. This weekend, our church has found itself in a desert place. Harvey Harris is taken from us. For many of us, he's such a good friend. For others of us, his loss reminds us too vividly of other heartaches. So here's our question. Can we, like Job, choose to continue to bless the name of Yahweh? May God give us strength to do that today. Let me pray. Father, saying at the beginning, we need you every hour we need you. You're one defense. Even in choosing to bless you, we can't even do that in our own strength. You're our righteousness. Holiness is Christ in me. And yet, in the midst of our pain, we know that you are a God who's on his throne that is good. So, whatever comes from your hand, we do choose to say, with your help, blessed be your name. Amen.